Thanks, ma'am. Well, that was depressing, right? It's pretty depressing. Not your prayer, Stephen. That was really good, uh, the passage. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes is written in a positive way. You could say it is written by a realist, right? It's been written by a realist. And, and honestly, that's one of the things I really love about the Bible. Uh, the Bible is an incredibly hopeful book. Honestly, just saying that, that sentence is a massive understatement. It's so hopeful. Uh, but the Bible is also incredibly honest, and I love it. And we just heard how honest it is about work. You have to hear how honest it is about work. Um, if you haven't already, uh, please open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, you'll see the, the page number on your screen if you're using a Bible under your chair. Um, that's where we're going to be tonight. But we, um, we talked a couple of weeks ago, if you were with us, about the goodness of work. And we looked at the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and we saw that God gave us work in paradise, that God didn't give us work as a punishment, but he actually placed it in paradise as a blessing, as a really good thing. And, and then in Genesis chapter 3, as if you've read your Bible, you know kind of how the story goes, but Adam and Eve... They decide that they want to be like God, that no longer they want to just image God, they want to be like God, and so they begin to rebel against God, and as a result of that, we see that sin enters the world, we see that brokenness enters the world, that the world isn't the way that it ultimately should be, and that a curse comes, a curse to males and females and the earth as a whole. But what's fascinating about this whole thing is that the, the commands that you see in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 remain in Genesis 3 and beyond. So in Genesis chapter 1, for example, God says to be fruitful and multiply, which is just a really nice way of saying make babies, right? And then in Genesis chapter 3, God looks at Eve and says, now because of your sin, childbearing is going to be more difficult. It's going to be really painful. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God tells Adam to, to work and keep the garden. He puts him in a garden, he says, work it and keep it. God, he's supposed to image and, and worship God through his work. And then in chapter three, you see God look at Adam and say, you know what, I still want you to work and to keep the ground, but it's gonna be really difficult now. You're gonna toil and labor, and, and by the sweat of your brow, you're gonna work the land. So, so these commands haven't changed, but work has become much more difficult. And, and so if you were with us about two weeks ago, and when you sat under Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in the teaching of that, you realize that work is a gift from God because God himself is a worker, and you might have felt really inspired maybe for a day or so, thinking to yourself, man, my work, it's, it's great if it's creative, it's re, if it's redemptive work, it, it images God, this is, this is amazing, it feels good, this is really empowering. But then what happened? Maybe you got a day or two in or something like that, and then you experienced the letdown. You experienced the letdown. You got into the nitty-gritty of your work, and, and whether you were trying to appease a crying baby or dealing with uh, the same disciplinary issue as a parent or whether you were trying to handle and deal with a very rude patient who you're trying to care for. Or, or you're dealing with an arrogant professor, or maybe a difficult customer, or, or maybe you were just working really hard at something and you finally finished, only to discover that you have to go all the way back and do it all over again. What happened? You stop, 
You take a deep breath, and you groan, right? You groan. Even Solomon, the writer of this, pas- of this book of Ecclesiastes, he experienced the same groan. In chapter 2, verse 11, we read this. It says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Vanity. That's a word in Ecclesiastes that just keeps popping up all over the place when you read it. And it's a word that connotates this idea of, of, of a vapor or a sense of fleetingness. And he's saying here in a passage like this that work really isn't all it's cracked up to be. It isn't completely what it should be. That's how it feels. This is a really bold statement because if you look and understand the life of Solomon, which he describes for you in verses 4 through 9 of chapter 2, all these things that he did and all these things that he accumulated... You see, he lists off, I built all these houses, I made these gardens. Uh, He says, I uh, made vineyards and parks, he even made pools, right? Pools, that long ago, he created a pool, right? He acquired possessions, he grew the company, so to speak. He made lots of money, he got all these treasures from famous people and kings. He had all this stuff. He says, I was the greatest person in all the land, and yet he groans, He's, he's been to the top only to feel the groans still. And so tonight, I, I want to talk about frustration and setback and the vocational groan. And to see if there's anything we can discover that will begin to cure us tonight from that. I really do, I believe this passage sort of opens this window into this area of our life and kind of lets a, a fresh breeze in for a moment. And so... Um, You'll see the outline on the screen. This is, again, just so you kind of know where we're headed if you're a note taker or something. But we're going to look at the fear in our work, the curse in work, the perspective shift that we need in our work, and the truth that will set you free in your work. So the fear and the curse in our work, the perspective shift we need, and the truth that will set you free. I'm not a hip-hop artist, okay? Just thought it was cool to rhyme, Okay. So first, the fear in our work. We're actually going to go back a few verses into verse 16, but we see two fears that that are both wrapped up into this concept of legacy, into this concept of legacy. Solomon has this fear of not having this legacy. First, we see that he's afraid of not being remembered, and secondly, he's afraid of his work not lasting. Let's just Look at that first one again, verse 16. We didn't read it yet, but it says in verse 16, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just as the fool. All right, so if you will, I never do this, but we're gonna do an exercise, okay? No worries, it's not a physical exercise. Well, for some of you, it might be, I don't know. But I need everyone to raise your hand, okay? Come on, you can do it. Everybody raise your hand. If you went rafting yesterday, this might be kind of difficult. I don't know. Raise your hand, okay? So I want everybody to keep your hand up. Keep it up if you can name one of your grandparents. Congratulations, good job. Now, take a hand down if you can't name one of your great-grandparents. 
Right now, take a hand down if you can't name one of your great-great-grandparents. Now, take a hand down if you can't name one of your great-great-great-grandparents. Wow. All right, that's where we got you. All right, you all need to go register for Ancestry.com, okay? <laughs> Memorize your family tree. I'm just kidding. I'm not, I'm not making a plug for them. I'm sure they're great, but whatever. But we see very clearly... That was a great exercise, right? That our ancestors have gone poof from our eyes. Right? And we see that 100 years from now, we, we, we are not going to exist physically. But even soon after that, we aren't going to exist in someone's memory either. That they will have no memory of us. I mean, just consider Psalm 103, as for man... His days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, and then the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. In one way, this is a pretty powerful thing, you know, just the thought. It's kind of freeing just to consider, like, people aren't going to remember you. Because you're like, okay, I don't really have to care what other people think about me in some ways, right? That's, that's kind of freeing in some sense, but more so, it's kind of depressing, a little bit. It's kind of sad. I mean, I mean, you mean to say to me that there's going to be a day that I won't even exist in somebody's head? This is terrible news to us because we, like Solomon here in Ecclesiastes, we long to be remembered. We long to be remembered. We long to have the things that we pour our sweat and our tears and our passion into to matter beyond our lives. And let's just be real for a second. We all want to leave a legacy. We all long for it. We all want to be remembered and for our work to last. This is our fear in our work. But then look at verses 18 through 21. He continues, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all, for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and great evil. So Solomon, this great king, he's in despair because all that he's built, others are going to build on it and they're going to enjoy it and they didn't even do the work. And maybe they're going to get the credit because Solomon here, he's going to disappear from the grid and he knows it. His fear in work is being exposed. It's a fear of leaving behind his work only to be destroyed by somebody else. It's a fear of legacy. So there's two aspects of legacy that Solomon is wrestling with. One, that he won't be remembered, so there's no legacy of memory. And two, that his work will be destroyed, that there will be no legacy of meaningful contribution. And we know what happens if you read the rest of your Bibles. Because when Solomon died, he left all of his earnings, he left his legacy to his oldest son, King Rehoboam. 
Solomon feared doing this. We, we just read that in Ecclesiastes. He was fearful of doing this, and he did not know whether or not his successor, his own son, would be wise. But we know what happened. We know what Rehoboam did. Rehoboam was such a fool that he lost 10 twelfths of his father's kingdom. Luckily, Solomon wasn't around to see it. So, so there's a groan that comes out when we build something, and then someone ruins it. Uh, if you know me, you know I like things to be clean, okay? I'm not a neat freak of any, any sort. I, I like things organized. I like things clean. And one of the biggest headaches of my life is my garage, okay? My garage is always a disaster. And so it's, it's so life-giving to me when I can get out there and I can organize it and clean it and get it just right. And then I take Liz out and I'm like, hey, check out the garage. She's like, wow, looks great. And I'm like, yeah, I actually know where stuff is. You know, if I'm looking for something, okay, it's a great, satisfactory feeling when that happens to me. But then the next day, my kids want to go play in the front yard, which means the garage door is going to open, which means all their bikes and everything else is going to come out, and which means for some reason they like playing with adult things for, for no reason at all. They just take these things and lose them, and it gets very frustrating, okay? I'm a little bitter still, all right? <laughs> Maybe this isn't your thing, Right? But maybe this is as simple to you, what I'm talking about, as an aspect of work, like keeping something clean and then seeing somebody destroy it, to tear it down, just to look at it and go, man, I don't even know if I want to keep doing this. Or maybe you've worked hard at a company or a nonprofit or even like a ministry, and you've built something, and you've really liked what you've seen God do or what you've liked what you've built, and you're moving on, and you fear that all your work is just going to be reversed. Or maybe you've raised your kids as a mother or as a father, and then you finally send them off to college wondering if anything that you did will matter, if they'll remember all the things you told them, or if someone else is going to, like, distract them and reorient their thinking. Or maybe it's as simple as taking your kids to preschool or kindergarten or something like that just wondering if they're going to remember everything you taught them. Or maybe it's fighting for environmental renewal are we going to go to Cloverland and do this nice thing and some little punk kids come in and do something? I don't know. Or it's teaching your students something, hoping that no one causes them to unlearn what you've just taught them. Or it's working hard on a group project. You've all been there. And then you have these lazy, incompetent other group members who come along and destroy all your hard work. What we are talking about is a fear in our lives of mattering of lasting. We're talking about legacy. Warren Schmidt, this will be on the screen, learned this lesson in the 2002 film about Schmidt. After retirement, Schmidt looks back on his life as an actuary for an Omaha insurance company. He realizes that he has little or nothing to show for all of his hard work. Here's what he writes to this poor and needy child that he starts to sponsor in Africa. He writes this to him in the movie. I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things, and I suppose the most you can hope for is to make some kind of difference. But what kind of difference have I made? What in the world is better because of me? Once I am dead and, and everyone who knew me dies too, it will be as though I never even existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of, none at all. Uh, hope things are fine with you. Yours truly, Warren Schmidt. So... <laughs> That poor kid, man, carrying his burdens. But this is our, our great fear in work, 
Those moments when you're at your lowest, when you're groaning, when you experience the vocational groan, it could be because of this fear that, that you will not be remembered, that you will have somebody destroy what you've built. See, the fall of man happened in the garden. As a result, death entered the world. And because death comes, the fear of our work not lasting beyond us is created. But this continues to build in, in, in verse 22. And we begin to see the curse of work. We see the curse of work. Notice I said the curse in work, not the curse of work. We must remember that work was put in paradise, not given as punishment, and their curse is in our work. It's not a curse. Let me put it to you this way. I love nothing more than enjoying a very warm summer evening on my deck. Maybe like a perfect ice cold Arnold Palmer in my hand or something. And I love to sit there and stare out at a very nicely newly mowed yard, perfectly edged boundaries to them. I like to look over and see fresh mulch in my Japanese maple and some different bushes, and I love to look out and see no weeds. It's, a, it's an awesome feeling. But I also know in that same moment, that is a very fleeting feeling. It's kind of vanity, so to speak, right? Because I know I had to go through so much toil and sweat and work, right? It's going to do some bad things to my body for a while, but hey, that moment's kind of worth it a little bit. I'm satisfied in what I'm staring at. But I know, and you know, I'm going to wake up one morning, I'm going to look out my window, and the grass is going to be taller. I'm going to see weeds popping up. And then I have to start all over again. That is the curse of our work. It's fleeting in some ways. And, and that's why Solomon, who's called the preacher here, he talks in chapter 3 about there being a time for this and a time for that and a time for this, and a time for that. It's such an annoying feeling. We think things shouldn't be this way. At least that's how I feel when I look out my window one morning and the grass is taller and all the weeds are back. And this is the same thing Solomon's getting at. Verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is also is vanity. So, so the word he uses to describe how all of his success in life makes him feel is in verse 23, and the word is vexation. He's vexed. It's a cool word to say. He's vexed. Vexation means the state of being frustrated, of being worried, and being annoyed. Frustration, right? Frustration, that's that feeling we experience when things aren't the way that they should be, or at least the way that we think they should be. When something isn't working out how we wished it would work out, we feel frustrated, right? That's the, that's the feeling you have. And here, this wildly successful man who has achieved all of his dreams, and honestly, he's kind of achieved all of our dreams, right? He's frustrated and he's worried and he's annoyed. And verse 17 says he hates life. Verse 20 says he's in despair. Verse 26 says it's all vanity, like chasing after the wind. 
And I read an article from um, Business Insider. It was about the man Marcus Person, who's the founder of a company called Minecraft, okay? And he sold his company in his mid-30s, three zeros, right? Mid-30s to Microsoft for $2.5 billion. This guy's 37 years old now. He lives in a $70 million mansion. He goes to parties all the time. He travels everywhere, anywhere he wants in the world, whenever he wants to in the world, and yet he says he is empty. A couple years ago, he tweeted out two things. They're on the screen for you. In one tweet, he said, the problem of getting everything is you run out of reasons to keep trying. In the second tweet, he said, I'm hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people. I'm able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. And I appreciate his honesty. Another article came out about the work culture in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area, and a successful worker in that piece said this, quote, Silicon Valley may be awash in material wealth, but we are still stricken here with poverty, relational poverty, spiritual poverty, emotional poverty. This is all what uh, Tennessee Williams, the famous playwright at the peak of his success said. He called it the catastrophe of success. See, here we have a list of people. I just try to give you a list of people who are pouring themselves into their work and finding themselves on the top of their fields in their work, hoping they can find satisfaction and ultimate meaning in it. And they're like the preacher, Solomon, here in Ecclesiastes. They are frustrated. They're vexed. They discover the curse that's in our work. Things aren't how they ultimately should be. And so what do we do when we get there? What happens when you land in a place like that? What do you do? Well, I I think we start doing this. We start looking around at other people. And if I see you and you don't seem frustrated, if you don't seem vexed, and I go, oh, what are you doing? Maybe I should be doing that thing. Maybe that will cure this frustration. I, I gotta go look at, this thing over here, I'm going to start pursuing that thing over here. I want to be like that person over there because they seem to have the solution to this problem. We keep chasing the glory that we long for in another thing. I'm putting this on the screen for you as well. Bertrand Russell, who's a British philosopher and famous atheist, I think he got it right on this one. He said, if you are after glory, if you want glory, you may envy Napoleon, he envied Caesar. And Caesar envied Alexander. And Alexander, I dare say, envied Hercules, who never existed. See, everyone goes poof. And here we are again. The fall of man, it happens in the garden. And as a result, death comes. And because death comes, the curse of work is acute inside of us because What we are doing doesn't seem to satisfy like we know it should. This curse of work is experienced when we take our metaphorical umbilical cords and we plug them into our work. We try to be fed from there. So you can spend your whole life chasing the rainbow, if you will, 
Well, what you're going to do is you're going to find the end of that rainbow, maybe, and you won't find a pot of gold. You'll find a pile of sticks, and it's just like chasing after the wind. The weeds come back. And what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Is there any hope? I told you this passage is depressing, right? Are you depressed enough yet? Well, don't give up hope, please, not yet, okay? Because there is a perspective shift that we need in our work. And we begin to see that in, in verse 24. We see Solomon turns and he says the first positive thing in the entire book, okay? First positive thing. These words feel as if you've been walking through a wilderness and you stumbled upon an oasis, kind of, right? It's the big turning point in the book of Ecclesiastes, not just regarding the subject of work, but really the, the book as a whole. And, and the, the famous uh, Reformation uh, pastor, theologian Martin Luther, called the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the verses we're about to read, a, quote, remarkable passage, one that explains everything preceding and following it. It is the, quote, principal conclusion he said, in fact, the point of the whole book. Well, what did these verses say? What do they say to us? Look in verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner... He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Well, not everyone agrees with Luther. A lot of people do, but not everyone does. And on first glance, you might not agree with him either. Some people think these words are still pretty negative. They think he's saying, well, there's just really nothing better to do, so just enjoy what you can while you can. And so they, they feel these words are begrudgingly trying to put this sort of positive spin on a really bleak perspective on life. Kind of like, well, it isn't much, but here's what life has to offer you, so go ahead and take it. But if that is Solomon's perspective and these words are true, right, then we all better just do life with the whole, you know, catchphrase, carpe diem. Let's just do that. Let's seize the day, Right? We're basically saying then Solomon is like the rich fool in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12, the guy who gets everything he wants and then he says to his soul, soul, eat, drink, and be merry. Or he would become like the victims that are doomed to be torn apart like wild beasts in the Roman amphitheaters in 1 Corinthians 15 who say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But I, I think Luther is right. I think like Charles Dickens so famously said, it really can be the best of times and the worst of times. But most of us are really black and white thinkers though and we think it has to be either or, but I don't think it necessarily has to be. I think Luther is right because earlier Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes concluded that work was a total drag and that even the pleasures of food and drink could not satisfy his soul. He said that. He's like, it doesn't even matter to me anymore. But now... Just at the end of chapter 2, he eats and drinks and finds enjoyment in his work. What makes the difference between joy and sorrow to him? Why could he, why could he say, I hate my work, food and, and drink do nothing for me anymore, and then say, I find so much joy in my work, and food and drink are very pleasurable to me? 
Well, what's the difference? It's, it's God. Do you see that? How he introduces God here to this whole story? And I think that's what he's intended to mean here when he talks about this sinner here who tries to do life apart from God and him who sees things as a gift from God. He's painting these two different pictures. One person, he's saying, views work and food and drink as a thing that they are entitled to. The other person views work and food and drink as a gift from the hand of God. That's the difference. To view these things as sufficient in themselves is misery for you. But to view these things as gifts from God and not sufficient things is life and perspective. What this is doing is it takes work and food and drink, the the, the pleasures and meaning that we seek, right? And it's moving them to now to the margins of our lives where God takes his rightful place in the center of them. And then it's taking those pleasures and those things and placing them back into the hands of God where they rightfully belong, as gifts. His perspective shifts. These things are gifts. They're not glory. See, perspective changes everything. It changes everything. Yesterday, a group of 13 of us went rafting, okay, down this really intense section of the Clackamas. It was such such a blast. It was really terrifying. There were multiple moments where I thought I was going to die, okay? <laughs> and if you've ever gone rafting, you know before you raft, the person who's guiding you will stand in front of you and give you the safety speech, okay? And this guy went on for like, it felt like ever. And at one moment, I remember he's talking about, hey, if you fall out of the boat and, and you got to put your feet downstream and look downstream and try to swim away from big things. But let's just say you're headed towards a log and you can't avoid it. He's like, what I want you to do is take all the adrenaline that you're going to have. And as best as you can, swim hard at that log and the last second, pop yourself on top of the log. He said to us, imagine that you're in a pool being chased by a shark. That's what I want you to do. Then I'll never forget, he actually said, he says, I think you can do it. So I'm like, I, you think I can do it, right? There's no promises here. He was, he was saying what we all didn't want him. He was not saying what we all didn't want him not to say, right? And so here we go, down the river. We're terrified, freaking out, some of us, right? That, that river, that yesterday, it was such a blast, right? But I, you could just feel the fear in so many of us, right? I'm sure there are some of you who didn't even go because you're like, I ain't dying on a river, right? (laughs) We went down the Clackamas. It was so fun. We got to the end. The guy stops us. You know, we gather together, and he's like, all right, you guys want to do it again? And it felt pretty mixed. You know, everyone's like, yeah, I want to go again. Some people are like, I don't know if I want to go again. But this is my point, okay? It was terrifying. That's my point. It was amazing. That's also my point. But you could either view the river the Clackamas River, what we went down, as a terrifying thing to avoid or as a playground to enjoy. It could either be a curse and a punishment or a gift and an adventure. See, a perspective that views work 
as an entitled thing or a thing that's an ultimate thing or a thing that will establish our legacy even, a thing that we strive for in and of itself is not just a bad perspective on life because it will bring you sadness. It's actually a false perspective because those things aren't gifts from God. God is the X factor. Those things like work and food and drink, they're all like the Clackamas River. If you see them as the ultimate thing in life, you will experience or view that river as death. But if you see them as a gift from the hand of God, you will experience or view that river as a gift. So, perspective matters here. Your worship, where your heart lands, really matters here. Is there any liberation from this fear and this vexation? Well, yes. Unplug the, the cord from running that company, from running your universe, from running that house, or from having your name in lights, or for getting that perfect GPA, or making the dean's list every quarter of your life, or from raising perfect children that you've always dreamed that they would be. Unplug the umbilical cord from those things, and then you'll do those things better than you ever imagined doing them as you plug that cord into God instead, your maker, your creator, the one for whom you are fashioned instead. Plug into his life and you'll be able to look on your work and you will groan differently. You'll still groan, but it'll be very different. But that's not everything. We didn't read it, but the author does continue down and he shows us the truth that will set you free in your work, look in verse 11. He says in chapter three of verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So the preacher taps into something profound here. I mean, here is one of the great frustrations of your existence and my existence. We are born with a longing for permanence, a deep desire to do something that will endure or to make something that will last. Yet our under-the-sun reality that Ecclesiastes talks about says that we will spend our whole lives working to gain something that we cannot keep. And it's going to drive Solomon to despair. This will be on the screen, but uh, we find in the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy's life, he wrote this. He said, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? See, Tolstoy longed for permanence because God has placed eternity into Tolstoy's heart. And when we, when we look to our work and we long for it to last, that's why. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, J.R.R.R. Thousand R's Tolkien, right? He wrote about this as well. He did. 
this working and groaning through it because of this eternity that's in our hearts. I don't know if you're ever familiar with his short story, Leaf by Niggle. That's what the title of the story is. Uh, I found this painting. Someone did this painting for some class about this short story. I thought it might be helpful for you to see. But in this story, Leaf by Niggle, there is this man named Niggle. And he is an obscure artist who lives in a very obscure town. And the town that he lives in just has no appreciation for art. And so he paints just for himself. That's what he does. And he has this vision. And in this vision of what he wants to create, he's gonna spend his whole life trying to create this thing, try to actualize this reality that he's dreaming up. And it's this beautiful landscape, this forest in the background. And in the front of this background is this epic tree. And he spends his whole life trying to paint this brilliant tree. But he has other things going on in his life. He's got cares in the world. He's got to take care of other people and do various things. And so anytime he gets, he pours his heart and his soul into this tree, but all he ever accomplishes is painting one simple leaf. Before he's expecting it, death arrives at his doorstep and he passes away. And so Niggle is on this train to heaven in this story. And while he's on this train to heaven, he looks out his window and he sees this beautiful landscape he's been dreaming of. And then he looks down and he sees this tree that he had dreamt up his whole life that he was trying to see actualized. And so he he gets off the train, he goes over to this tree, he's staring at this tree that he had been dreaming of his whole life. And he looks And on this tree, he sees a leaf, and it's his leaf. It's the leaf he was working on all along. And so Niggle stays, and he continues to make this place that he's now in even more beautiful than it ever was, and he ventures out into that forest that he had dreamt up his entire life. But all he could get out of his life was that one little leaf. So Tolkien, when he writes this, was personally writing about the frustration that he had regarding his own work. He was writing about the fear that he carried, that he thought no one else would read his works, that he was pouring his heart and his soul into the creation of this tree. And you know what that metaphorical tree was for him? It was Middle Earth. He was pouring his heart and his soul into the story that he was creating, and he didn't even think his mom would read it. And Tolkien passed. He didn't get to see the fruit of his labor. He's, he's writing about the frustration that we all have in our work and how our work is an echo of the truest creation, the echo of the new heavens and the new earth. He's writing about eternity being written into our hearts. Do you see it? You long for permanence. You long for eternity. Because you were made for eternity with God, working in his good work. You see, what's fascinating about Solomon, who is groaning about his work, wondering if his work will last beyond his lifetime, wondering if his work even matters, is that Solomon is one of the greatest kings that the world has ever seen in history. 
Yet Solomon, the king, was not the king that God decided to send to reverse the curse from Genesis chapter 3. Why? Because Solomon would live and Solomon would die. That frustration of having eternity written into his heart affected him. The curse of death reigned in him. It still came and he passed. But see, God would send a king who would live and who would die and who would be raised and who would never die again. He is an eternal king and no one can steal this king's throne. His name is Jesus. It's Jesus. You see, Jesus can't groan in his work because he is an eternal king and what he does endures forever. It has no end to it. See, we see here that whatever God does endures forever. If you don't believe me, look in verse 14. I says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. See, I ripped it off, right? It endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Whatever God does, it endures forever, it just does. And we must understand this work overshadows your groaning. It does, it makes your groaning very different if you've placed your faith in the eternal King Jesus. It doesn't eliminate your groaning completely here and now, but it definitely changes your groaning. Because there is something supreme that God is doing in his work that will endure forever. His work that endures forever is not tied to what you necessarily do. It's tied to what you are becoming. Or better stated, it's tied to who you are becoming. Because Philippians 1.6 says, We are confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. See, when Jesus returns, the work that God began in you to make you more like Jesus and to make all things new, to see the tree of niggle realized will be your experience if you know Christ. You see, we are all niggle. That's who, that's who we are. And one day, like niggle, we will all be in awe. We will be in awe. Just like 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, no eye has seen nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. See, we can look forward with such hope and awe because we can look back to the cup and to the bread of the eternal king. Because Jesus righted all of our wrongs in his body on the cross and rose from the dead and defeated death itself, we can look forward, not with vexation, but we can look forward with hope. We see in Isaiah 53 a picture of Jesus, and it's said that he will toil and he will sweat, not just of his body, but of his soul. And he will look back upon his work on the cross, and he will say with a satisfied heart, it is good. It is supremely good. Well, what is good? What is he talking about? His work. Well, what is his work? It's reversing the curse of Genesis 3. It's ultimately a work of saving and renaming people for himself. We are that finished work. 
You're that perfect leaf on a tree. See, the fall of man happens in the garden. And as a result, said it a few times, what happens? Death comes. Because death comes, the eternity that was put into your heart is rattled. It's rattled. And we long for our work to last beyond our lives. We want our work to matter. We want to leave a legacy. But your legacy is not made in in your work. Your legacy is given to you. It's in the gospel, in our eternal God who does not groan, we have hope. So you might not groan in your work tonight, but you might tomorrow, maybe tonight, but tomorrow, the next day. But your groaning is only intended to reveal to you that this world isn't as it ought to be. But God, eternal God, who isn't frustrated, who isn't vexed, he's at work in the world, and he's making all things new. And so therefore, we get to partner with God in our work, joining him in the renewal of all things. So some days we will groan, but we will groan differently because we know that there will come a day where we will no longer groan in our work again. That day is coming. Because he who began a good work in you, will see it to completion when Jesus comes again. If you would, let's all stand to our feet.